Hi, I'm Aviva Rumani, and welcome to episode 52 of Kindred Cast, Lion Tree's bi weekly podcast featuring insights from deal makers and thought leaders from the world of tech, media, and everything in between. On today's show, we feature a conversation with Vice Media CEO Nancy Dubuque and Lion Tree's executive in residence, Betsy Morgan. Dubuque recently took the reins at the edgy, youth-centric content company after 20 years at A&E Networks, most recently as president and CEO. We'll hear about the latest phase of Vice's evolution into a multi-platform entity, the advantages of creating your own content, and Nancy's plans for the company's growth. Enjoy this great chat. I'm here this afternoon with one of the leading voices in content production. Nancy Dubuque is the CEO of Vice Media. She joined Vice last year after spending over 20 years at A&E Television Networks, the last six of which she led the business as CEO. Nancy brought A&E to record-setting ratings, awards, and acclaim with blockbuster shows including Ice Road Truckers, Pawn Stars, Dance Moms, Vikings, and of course, Duck Dynasty. Nancy, as you'll hear in this podcast, is a fearless and trusted leader in media. She's a risk taker by nature, and she's not afraid of rolling the die on content. That quality will continue to serve her well as she is now running the largest and most valuable digital native media company on the planet, Vice Media. Nancy, thanks for joining me on KindraCast. I'm Thank really happy you're here. Me. Thank you. Welcome. What a fun change of scenery to commute to hip Williamsburg, Brooklyn instead of Midtown Manhattan. I know. I know. <laughs> What's been the most fun part of being in the vice offices and commuting to Brooklyn? And does it feel like dress down every day uh, instead of dress down Friday? It does. It's actually in a way more stressful to get dressed to go to Vice than it is to go to A&E. <laughs> Although the shoe comfort has been the, probably the greatest perk. And that just not having to ever think about wearing heels, not ever having to think about that nature of it has been great. But it's probably like you have to have the right sneaker. The right sneaker, right? definitely. Sneaker. Although, you know, I wear my Converse quite a bit, but I guess that goes in the right sneaker category. <laughs> yeah. Are there vans? Are there a lot of vans? A lot of vans, but the sneaker thing is a thing. It's a whole thing. I get there by water taxi. Quite a bit. No way. Yeah. From Manhattan. From Manhattan. So far. Um, yeah, just a couple of months after joining, the water taxi actually extended up to East 90th. So I take it from up there or I drive, you know, or I take a car, Uber or taxi, which is quite efficient. It's pretty fast to get there. It's great. I love being there. The energy in the office is fantastic and the days go incredibly fast. So I'm between there and Dumbo a little bit, but also LA and, you know, we have offices in London and Berlin and Amsterdam and really all over the world. But I've been trying to stay put in Brooklyn just because being fairly new to the organization and a lot going on. That's great. It's funny. Something I've always admired about Vice is the continued success over time on a wide variety of platforms, success in print, in audio, in digital, in feature films, in pay TV, cable TV. Do you think that's been a competitive advantage to the brand? I think no doubt. Absolutely. Especially today, you know, as there's so much change happening in the industry and so much 
pressure specifically on the digital advertising portion of the industry. The idea that if you just look at the slice of the pie from a revenue standpoint of what we're dependent on from digital advertising on a global basis, it's pretty small. It's less than 25% of our revenue is digital advertising. So that idea, you know, we're in publishing, television, advertising, you know, agency, studio, news, the diversification of all the businesses that we're in allows us to flex where there's growth and where there's opportunity as the business continues to evolve with all of the changes that we're seeing out there, whether it be the M&A changes that we're seeing, whether it's the technology changes that we're seeing, the secular shifts in agencies and advertising, subscription. So I think that that's been the most interesting and fun part of the first sort of eight months of the job of learning all the different businesses and being able to pivot and focus on the areas of growth and be able to also align the company around opportunities for one vice because we've historically been operating really as discrete individual businesses and not seeing the opportunity to leverage ourselves as one company. With partners, with advertisers. Correct, correct. It has to feel fantastic after living in a world of linear TV to look at your monthly financials and see a lot of different revenue lines. Yes, absolutely. It's great to be able to see the ability to work with a client and instead of affiliate revenue or advertising revenue to fulfill a need, we have many different opportunities, whether it's live events, whether it's activations, whether it's strategic consultation, whether it's true inventory like Spots and Dots, Mm -hmm. or whether it's affiliate revenue, which we have as well. To be able to fulfill a Google, for example, comes to us and we work with them on how to drive consumers to Chrome, using Chrome, or how to help Pandora, the jewelry company, drive more revenue and more purchases. That's not going to be just a impressions-based business anymore. What it needs to be in the future is a moving product and or driving people business results-based currency. And I think industries or businesses that can do that in multifaceted ways, not just okay, here are the impressions that we gave you, I think are going to be set up in a much more interesting way for the future than just traditional media companies that are wholly reliant on an impression-based currency with companies. That's where I look at the opportunities that we have and whether it's telling stories for companies in long form, whether it's activating live events, whether it's doing strategic planning for those companies, all of that suite of opportunities that we have, they're all growth areas for us. And you take that and you layer on the fact that it's global. You know, we're 50% Mm -hmm. international and 50% U.S., both in eyeballs and in revenue. When you started working with Vice in 2016, when you were at A&E and you took a minority stake in the company and launched Viceland, did you in your mind begin to see all those opportunities. You know, there's a focus on launching a cable channel, but did you see this as a company that had potential for so much more just in terms of reach and revenue? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't with the eyes that I have now. It Mm -hmm. definitely wasn't the lens that I was looking at it, but we always saw Vice as a diversified company that was a future-facing business. One of the reasons that we were attracted to it at A&E and in the time frame that we were looking at it was also the same time frame that a lot of production companies were selling for very high multiples. And those production companies, ironically, didn't own their IP. 
So to us, it didn't make sense that, you know, these transactions were happening and it was really for cash flow. <laughs> you know, you looked at Vice and they also had production deals with companies, but they were also a studio. They were also an agency. They also had independent means of distribution for digital. They were at a consumer-facing brand where production companies don't have a consumer-facing brand. That in itself, they were already um, so, far ahead. so far ahead from a diversification standpoint, and they had direct-to-client relationships on the advertising side. And then you look at it from the A&E point of view, and we were already faced with a lot of pressure from a distribution standpoint, from the bundles, the pressure on the bundle, mm -hmm. declining subscriptions in the pay TV universe. And we had, in our sort of six to eight channel universe of the A&E bundle, two of the channels were history channels. So there was going to be pressure on the second history channel. So we were looking forward and saw an opportunity to diversify one of those networks and to use the value that we had in that network to create something different for affiliates. And so that was where that idea came from. Now, eight months in, you must be seeing different white spaces in the Vice brand and different places for new content creation. Can you talk publicly a little bit about sort of where you're yeah, seeing this? Yeah, I think, you know, when you look at the history of Vice, what's amazing is, you know, out of Shane's and Saroosh and the founder's brilliance, they really came out of that Gen X passion, quickly evolved to a millennial-facing brand. And I think what you see us now doing, and if you look at where our largest audience growth is, it's Gen Z. Yep. What I think is incredibly impressive about the brand is most media brands get stuck in one generation mm -hmm. and they find mm -hmm. it very difficult to continuously age down and continuously morph to the next generation. And this brand has never had a problem doing that. And I think it's because they have also been very comfortable with putting their brand everywhere. Maybe it's the era in which it was born. Our distribution is ubiquitous. We are where our viewers are. We are where our audiences are. That allows us to stay young and be young. We're also very cognizant and very aware that we have to be unique to those platforms. What you see on HBO is obviously not what you see on Snap. And what you see on Snap is not what you see on Facebook. And what you see on Facebook is not what you see on Viceland. And the list goes on and on. Right, not and one so size fits all. It's not all. one size fits all. Yep. And because we produce and create all of our content in-house, that's where the magic to the style guide is and the consistency to the brand. That's what has been able to keep us very authentic and authentically young and connected to our audience and allowed us to keep aging down. When I look forward, we're spending a lot of time making sure that we're really understanding what some of those nuances to this generation sort of coming up are and growing those audiences from a content standpoint. It's a little soon to tell you specifics around what that content is, but you'll see us very focused on what's happening on Snap. You'll see us increasingly focused on what's happening on YouTube, but those two platforms have been our biggest growth areas this year in 18, and I think will continue to be in 19. News is an area digitally that I want to see continue to grow and we're making investments in. Vice has a big opportunity to continue to strengthen the news brand, and young people are 
reading and watching and listening to the news. That's something that's a bit of fake news, actually, that's out there that they don't care. They do. It just needs to be delivered in a voice and in a manner in which they care and about topics and issues that they care about. And we're quite good at doing that. I think the studio is also an area that presents a tremendous opportunity for us, especially as the SVOD platforms continue to grow internationally. And the, the regulatory environment internationally requires a lot of local language and locally produced content. And then you see our international offices with local creative and local production capabilities. Because you are very smartly, and unlike a lot of other companies, focused on really kind of addressing the audience on the platform that you're making content for, do you worry at all about scaling? Does it end up being kind of too many little silos? We're focused on engagement. Scale is tricky and we definitely have scale, but we look at scale on the standpoint of across all of our businesses and across global. We may not have scale on any one platform in any one audience, but when we're looking at serving what a client may need or what we need to do from a content production standpoint, we're able to do what we need to do because everything is controlled in-house. So if we're serving a production need for a platform, we don't have a scale problem because right. everything's in-house. Right. If we are serving a client from an advertising standpoint, we don't have a scale problem because we're global and mm-hmm. we're across many platforms. So, and typically, engagement is becoming more important than scale. And for us, because we're talking to such a unique and young audience that's hard to reach, that's trumping scale. So far, that hasn't been the biggest challenge. Now, scale, we want scale, and we're going to continue to look for it. Mm-hmm. But scale for scale's sake, I think, is a, a, dangerous, is a path. dangerous path. Agree. That's something that I'm very cautious and careful about. And I don't want to see us, you know, chasing the clickbait and the three-second video views. Our average length of tune on digital video is upwards of six minutes in length. That's pretty long. And if you look at that against many of our competitors, it's much, much longer than many. And it shows how much you care about the content. Yeah. And that we make content that will resonate for six minutes, not six seconds. Yeah. And we've always stayed above the fray. I mean, we've always played in the premium content game from the beginning. So everything that we've done digitally on YouTube, everything that we've been able to do has had a premium patina to it. You talked about how for Gen Z and for millennials, they still are very, very interested in news. And I completely agree with that. It just isn't being delivered to them in a place they want to consume it or in a way they want to consume it. Does it amaze you that that's an industry that really has not evolved or changed with the times? Yes. Still serving like the baby boomer generation? You would think after we got rid of the anchor behind the desk that everybody would have followed. And the idea that nobody experimented with it is a little crazy. Granted, there are some cost logistics to it, and and I understand the reasons behind some of it, but it's just kind of crazy. I agree with you. (laughs) It's just kind of crazy. Speaking of different generations and younger generations consuming content in different places, as somebody who started her career in a linear world, in a world where you waited a whole seven days for Mm -hmm. the next episode of your favorite show, what does the world of binge TV or binge content consumption mean for you as a creator? 
Why do you think you, unlike so many of your peers, have been able to adapt to that shifting change in the... I think it goes back to the ubiquitous idea that we're able to do whatever we need to do for whomever needs us to do it. (laughs) And that we have that range of skill set in our four walls or the virtual four walls. Serve the consumer first. that we serve the consumer and we serve who our partner is, whether that partner is Amazon or whether that partner is ourselves, whether we're making content for ourselves and our platforms, our O&O, or whether we're making a a feature film like The Report, and then that in turn is going to Sundance, and then that in turn is being bought by Amazon, or whether we're making a series for one of the SVOD platforms, so that we're able to adapt to whatever is required with whomever we're partnering with, whether that's HBO or whether that's YouTube or whether that's for ourselves or whether that's for Viceland. Having that range and being able to learn and iterate in-house, again, I think it's adaptability. We talk a lot about, it's not Darwin, it wasn't survival of the fittest. It was the, the one who could adapt. That was really the theory behind Darwin. It was adaptability. Mm-hmm. We talk a lot about that in the last couple of months at Vice and that our ability to adapt is what will make us thrive for the next 10 years and that we've really only been in the video business for a little over 10 years. And when you think about mm-hmm. what we've accomplished, whether it be just on the awards basis alone or all of the different genres of video that we're in, news, long form, film, short form, episodic, documentary, it's pretty remarkable for a pretty brief history. For a pretty young company. <laughs> for a pretty young company. When people like to count us out, I like to remind people of the pretty brief history and that, yeah, we've had a hiccup, but we're pretty young. So speaking of new platforms, I'm curious to know, you haven't mentioned Facebook Watch yet. Do you see Facebook Watch as a competitive platform to put content on or a marketing vehicle or both? At the moment, it's probably both long-term, From the social platform standpoint, we want to be everywhere that our consumers are. And so that means beyond every social platform, but we definitely prioritize the platforms where we are seeing stronger monetization models. Mm -hmm. And for us, and engagement. And for us right now, that's on YouTube and on Snap. We see a tremendous amount of scale and referral from Facebook, but we're not seeing great monetization. For us, we're treating it like referral and marketing. We need to improve and figure out and engage on the monetization standpoint. Watch could be a fun opportunity when it comes to Viceland, the live strategy there. And there are some extensions to live where we could start to play with that and continue the live show while we're on commercial break and things like that. Right now, it's not a huge priority for me, but that's also because the list of what I have to tackle (laughs) is pretty long. (laughs) <laughs> I want to go back just for a minute to your long career at A&E, and then we'll get back to Gen Z and the millennials, because okay. I have more questions about them. So at A&E, you channeled a main street, mainstream, America, heartland, non-elitist audience. What do you think that audience is hungering for now? And what do you think is not available to, I wouldn't even say not on television, but is not available in the marketplace right now that that audience wants to be watching instead of watching like a Dance Moms rerun? What's missing? Um, Well, I think there's a lot of content out there. I think, I don't know if I could tell you exactly what's missing because I would just go produce it. 
curation is tricky for people. I find myself now going to my kids' logins to see what I'm not being served. Um, so Because everything's being so filtered. Everything's being so filtered yeah. in a way that I understand that the algorithm intent is show me things they think I'm going to like, but I'm translating it as you're just showing me all the stuff that's the same. That's annoying me. And so I'm going to theirs and... <laughs> and what are you learning? Well, their stuff is funnier and younger and more experimental than the stuff that I'm getting. I'm frustrated by the experience of not seeing more holistic content experience. So I think curation still has a ways to go. But I think thematically, and I spend a lot of time thinking about this, you know, it's time for some comedy and some lighter fare. Kind just of the in counter, general counterbalance the Yeah, whenever people are feeling pretty heavy, sentiment. then mm -hmm. you want to go the opposite way. I have a 15-year-old living in my household. Girl or boy? A boy. I have a 12-year-old girl who's also doing the same thing. Everybody in their circles is watching The Office. Yeah, doesn't that seem everybody's, wild? Everybody's doing it. And on both coasts, like their friends in LAX. So there's something to the political correctness or political incorrectness that they're craving there's something there. And I'm not sure what that says, but there's a content idea there. They're craving, yes, I understand kindness and I understand all of the things that we need, but I also need something else. I need to figure out a way to laugh at myself and I laugh with my friends. Well, and it also shows you that's a great example of a show that is so multifaceted, multi-layered. that kind of first iteration of The Office was for all of us that worked in an office. The children, the 12 and 15-year-olds at that time, when it was on broadcast TV, wouldn't have watched it because it wasn't an environment that was familiar to them. So the great creativity of that show is that it's now going to a completely different, younger generation that I don't think your 12-year-old or 15-year-old have spent a ton of time working in an office environment. They're watching it for another reason. Yeah, I mean, I think they started watching it because they got used to seeing Steve Carell in movies that they started mm -hmm. to watch. And then some of it is wildly inappropriate. They probably shouldn't have been watching it. The 12-year-old probably shouldn't be watching it, but... <laughs> um, they also shouldn't be reading and watching some of the things they're doing on Vice, but that's another issue. I mean, when I looked at The Office again with them, it's pretty inappropriate <laughs> in terms of what we were putting on TV from a humor standpoint then and what we would do now. It always amazes me whenever I'm on an airplane how many young people, 12 and 15, are binging on Friends. My son just started it. Kind of same thing, these kind yeah. of these so there's series something, that are coming like, back. There's something there. The theme right. there, they want that comedy and that lightness and that sitcom. And, and the community that's in the office or the community yeah. that was part of that group of friends in New York City. Yeah. And I think actually it's time for the closed-ended drama to come back. It's a big investment to watch a show now. You essentially have to say, I'm going to commit to 10 episodes or I'm going to commit to 12 episodes or 20 that you can't just drop in and understand the high concept and mm -hmm. say, I'm going to pick an episode and watch it and enjoy it and then And then go to something else. And go to something else. And this low burn of character development over three episodes is the time commitment. Just from an execution standpoint, there's an opportunity to think a little differently about how some of these things are formatted. 
Oh, that's fascinating. I really think you're one of the few people in video that is thinking that way, that isn't just trying to copycat other series. Um, and then from a know, cost standpoint, I think that you could easily be doing two-hour dramas. That people, you know, we're already doing longer, it. Right? We're already doing right, it. Right, by binging. Totally, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Going back to live TV or live content, live video, and the opportunity in there that hasn't totally materialized on a small device, on a phone. Did you ever play or watch HQ Trivia? And did you ever yeah, think there was anything... through my kids. Is there yeah. anything, like, interesting there that could say, okay, that's a I beacon? I thought it was pretty straightforward. I was surprised it didn't immediately get copied by a zillion people. <laughs> and why do you think that is? I mean, I it's know. had sort of a high point and now it's kind of at a yeah. lower point. There must be something about the technology and the barrier to entry that I'm not understanding. It captured everyone's imagination, obviously, very quickly. And I love that it was appointment iPhone. We were doing it in our house, you know, mm -hmm. around the holidays and everybody was trying we to get on too, and right? trying to get on. You get kicked <laughs> out and then like you'd be idiots, mad, you know? right? <laughs> Going back to sort of friends or the office or, or community, it is interesting in a live environment where it feels like a shared experience. That they were smart enough to say, okay, it'll be on at three o'clock on East Coast and 12 o'clock on West Coast. So we really can be thoughtful about everybody in their day being able to partake for those 20 minutes. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that that's where pay TV, it's a little bit why we've gone live on Viceland, that mm -hmm. live is the one area that we can compete where the SVOD platforms just aren't going to. We can also move the content around into different social platforms in different ways. And I see my kids on Instagram live and they think everything is live worthy and it's not. <laughs> so <laughs> it's not. There is something to that generation capturing everything they do that there's a trend there. Mm -hmm. Exactly what is worthy of live television we're still figuring out. But I do think that there's an opportunity there. And it just feels like we're at the very, the very beginning, beginning, the tip of the iceberg or the top of the cornice. I loved reading a quote from you that said, managers either hire people who are smarter than they are or they hire people that they can control. I love that word control. And I think that's a super smart way to say it. And you are clearly someone who hires people that can bring more to the conversation and bring more to the table versus I've got all the answers. Where do you think that came from? Why do you think that was in you to do? I think... It probably naively was just probably was insecurity at first, being put in jobs before I was ready. I had a long career of being thrown in over my head for one reason or another. And some of it was content related and hit show related and retention related. She's doing this and this and we have to keep her. So give her this responsibility, give her, yep. give her this responsibility. When that happens, it's the age old, you know, you're getting promoted out of what you're good at. I was also being put in situations where my skills were being tested. As a producer, what you do is you hire people that can help you do the job. That's It's a producing skill. So I went to my producing skills and brought in a complement of a team just the way that you do a show. You hire the best wardrobe, the best writer, the best director, the best DP. It was the same same think, mindset. Same mindset for me that I Smart. hired the best CFO and the best strategist and the best lawyers, but also people that all were going to have a loud voice at the table and people who I knew 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 more. And that I think in a way, you know, a CEO is a generalist. A CEO 
really just needs to have the ability to ask the right questions and the intuition to know when things are going in the wrong direction and also to be a catalyst for collaboration and creativity. That's my job. My job is to manage the bottom line, to grow the company, to control costs, but also to lead and bring people together and ask provocative questions to keep pushing us forward. I'm a doer. I've been known for having this, you're either a thinker or a feeler or a doer. (laughs) And I'm actually a doer, which I I don't think I've ever told anybody which one I am. So I just broke some news. Broke some news on Kindercast. I like having the thinkers around me because if they have the vision and I feel like if they have that view and that intellect, then I know how to get it done. Is it hard to put a thinker, a feeler, and a doer in a room together? And no, you them absolutely not, need them together. Do they fight? No, you all? need them together. Because if you have all thinkers together, then nothing happens. If you have all doers together, then they do bad things. And then if you have all feelers together, then, oh, it's drama. <laughs> a lot of drama. A lot of drama. So I've always believed that you sort of need the balance. It's been written widely that people who work for you and with you say that you're a lot of fun. What makes you so fun? I've actually never heard of fun. (laughs) I've heard brutally honest. (laughs) You know, we have to be having some fun in all of this. (laughs) It's it's hard out there these days. We're not in the insurance industry, right? We're in the creative content industry. And that if we're not having some fun along the way, then I should just go be a finance person or right right you um, miss you miss the boat you miss the boat right i'm here to have some fun it's an important part of the equation for me it's what motivates people to do their best work and at the end of the day we are in a creative industry you do want people to enjoy what they're doing and bring their best and fear doesn't bring that as soon as people are fearful it's over Certainly as part of the creative process. Yeah, and even sure. if I have fear, I have to hide that from them. And there needs to be a sense of fun to get the best creative output. I agree. Nancy, you grew up in Rhode Island. You mm-hmm. went to college in Boston. Mm-hmm. So you're a New England gal. First of all, do you root for Boston teams? Well, definitely the Patriots. I have a Oh, go Pats. Yeah, I have a famous picture in my wall of the Seattle catch. Oh, no way. Mm-hmm. We love the Pats. Yeah. How do you think your New England upbringing has influenced your career? I mean, that might sound like a crazy question, but do you think it's had a little bit of an impact just in kind of where you grew up? And I think, of course, it does. You know, New England's pretty small town. Those Yankee values, hard work, and everything was a, a mom and pop business. There wasn't a lot of big industry and big corporations. And even in Boston, the national media footprint was WGBH, and, <laughs> and that's where I worked. I realized, oh, this is going to be it, WGBH, <laughs> or I got to go to New York. And so that was my turning point when I was 25. What do you What <laughs> so, do you remember about your early days at GBH? Um, we got to eat at the Harvard Business School cafeteria. That's where we had lunch. How'd you get in there? Because it was the education union. We were part of the education union. Oh, no way. Yeah, that's where we got to eat lunch. There's good food. Really good food Really good there. food on the HBS campus. Yeah, yeah. It's a good deal. That's where we went to lunch. You got to do everything. I mean, I, I was part of the This Old House team, which was five people that produced an enormous amount of television, This Old House, New Yankee Workshop, and the Victory Garden. When you think about bloated infrastructures in 
television production or movie production today, yeah. like that's a great beacon to point to, to say. Yeah. I used to write at- the EDLs, the edit decision list in the field. Wow. It's this take, it's this take. I would hand write it out and then fax it to the editor. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty crazy stuff. Like it can be done. When people tell me like, can't do it that way, I'd be like, oh, you can do it that you way. You can do it that way. I'd go to done. the, I'd like follow the cameraman around and watch the time code and write it yeah. down like the good old days. So it goes back to being a generalist. I think it's important. And this maybe goes back to the millennials and Gen Z and I've done enough jobs just a little bit to be dangerous. As you get older and more experienced, you find that that serves you very, very well. Very, very well. And I'll, I'll randomly ask a question where somebody will be like, how does she know? And you're like, ha, ha, ha. See what I know? <laughs> On what device do you primarily consume? Big screen, iPad, your phone? You know, I'm pretty evenly split. Late at night, I would say it's the big screen. If I'm watching TV, that's when everything's over. And if I have time for a show, it's the big TV in the bedroom. A lot of reading on the small screen on the phone. I'm incredibly adept at getting a lot done on that little tiny machine. Right. Who needs a computer? Yeah. And iPad. I can move pretty seamlessly between just like the, the three. Just like the audience that you're serving. Yeah. Right? Moving seamlessly between all screens. Last question for you. I've seen you at Soul Cycle spinning to some great tunes. Has music influenced your work and the creative process? You know, I think we all underestimate the power of music. And music is an incredible emotional driver. One of the shows that I was a AP on was the history of rock and roll at PBS. Oh, that's and fun. it was my job to call up labels and tell them that they owned other labels in the early days of consolidation. And they mm-hmm. would go, we don't own that song. I go, oh, yeah, you, no, do, you do, because you bought this company <laughs> that bought that company. Like, what? <laughs> it's a great equalizer and it, it lodges in our brain in ways that I don't, I don't even think we understand. And a great mood lifter too. Yeah. Nancy, you've been so kind to talk to Kindred Cast and to talk to me today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks for hanging out. You're welcome. I hope you enjoyed our show today. If you want to check out any prior episodes, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Feel free to leave a review there as it helps people find the show. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at KindredCast for behind-the-scenes photos and info. Keep listening and see you next time. Audiation.